ego is the root of nearly every obstacle or problem. Most of the time, however, we don't see it this way. We tend to think that something or someone else is to blame for our problems. Listen, I get it. Doing great things can be terrifying. Our ego calms that fear and also stops us from doing that great work. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Ryan Holiday about his book, Ego is the Enemy. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. Many of my most successful clients find themselves looking for a way to preserve and grow their wealth without the uncertainty and volatility of Wall Street. There is another way. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, helps practice professionals translate their high income into a high net worth. He does this by connecting members with highly curated passive real estate deals through his Freedom Founders community. Real estate can hedge your portfolio against inflation, all while providing passive monthly income. This secures your wealth and creates meaningful freedom in your life today not some vague retirement date in the distant future. Some of my top clients have benefited from David's support and the Freedom Founders community. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text DUSTIN to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. Ryan Holiday wrote two of my favorite books, The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy. Both books are New York Times bestsellers. Ryan became the chief marketing officer of American Apparel at the ripe age of 29. He has also studied with Robert Greene, another great author who wrote the books 48 Laws of Power and Mastery. Ryan has written for the New York Times, the New York Observer, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, The Huffington Post, Medium, Forbes, and the list goes on and on. Today, we'll talk to Ryan about his best-selling book, Ego is the Enemy, where he says, every one of us is either aspiring, succeeding, or failing at any particular point in our lives, and ego is the enemy at every step we take. However, it can be managed and put into focus. Let's see how on this episode of the Burleson Box. Ryan, how are you? Hey, man, how are you? Good. Thanks for doing this. It's an honor. I really appreciate it. We, yeah, well, look, thank you for, for supporting. Well, yeah, I mean, so I, I find it interesting that, that Robert Greene is one of your mentors because that's another series of books that, you know, there's books that you read that are like uh, inspiring and there's books you read to learn to be a better writer and there's books you read just to entertain yourself. And then there's books like yours and Robert Greene's that can really, if practically applied, you can actually build a better life out of help other people with. And, uh, and so it's really a really, really, really good book. I'm curious how you got into, how you got into studying the Stoics. And I mean, you kind of re you reignited my interest, uh, in a lot of old books, uh, with the obstacles away. And, um, and again, yeah. with, with ego as the enemy. So talk a little bit about like your background and how you, I mean, you're obviously one of the most well-read authors I've ever come across. Uh, tell us about your background with that. Yeah. So I got introduced to stoicism. I was in college and I attended this conference. Um, I don't know if you know who Dr. Drew is. He has a show on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was really popular with college kids. He had a show on the radio. 
It was a small conference, and, and afterwards I just said, hey, you know, uh, are there any books you would recommend? And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm reading this, this book by the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. You should check it out. And so that, that had sort of been my, like, habit or hobby at the time. I would ask smart people what books they would recommend. And so he recommended Stoicism to me, and I ended up checking it that sort of, you know, it was like this amazing eye-opening thing. And I've always found that when I read one thing I like, I try to find everything that I can related to that. So it was just this sort of rabbit hole that I ended up going down. I was just, yeah, I was just going to say, there's some authors that are kind of a mile wide and and an inch deep. Yours is a mile wide and a mile deep. (laughs) Like you can tell you go and like chase every reference. Uh, You know, very few authors are putting... Uh, Rockefeller and General Sherman and, you know, and, and, and football coaches all in the same like paragraph. It's really, really, it's very impressive. <laughs> so. Well, when I, when I, when I read, what I try to do is I try to read one book related to whatever that book that I just read was. I like that. Do you find ones like with different that's connected to him? Yeah. Do you find any with different like opposing views? Um, and, and, and try so, to, sometimes I'll do that. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do that. Or, um, I'll, I'll just read, like, the acknowledgments or the bibliography of the book, and the author will sort of say, like, you know, this book was really influential to me, or I didn't like this one, or, you know, for people who are really interested in this topic, read this. So I, I, I tend to sort of take the, like, you're sort of going back up the chain of source material. I, I find that, that that tends to be helpful. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about your reading list, by the way. So for everyone listening and all of our clients, we'll we'll recommend they get on your reading list. I've been on it for years. Um, You obviously read a lot and and probably very quickly. Tell us, you know, how you how do what inspires you to add books to that list? How do you I mean, I don't find a whole lot. It seems like Barnes and Noble is becoming more and more like a, a cat calendar and and a, like station, <laughs> stationary store than than an actual bookstore. Sure. <laughs> uh, being in Austin, do you guys you guys probably have some awesome bookstores down there? Well, so I've always I think the big thing like I talk to a lot of people and they say like look I just don't have time to read or I'm too busy or I wish I could read more. And I think one of the ways I solved that problem was I just sort of said hey look um, reading is part of my job. And I said this long before. You know, I was I was an author. It's like, hey, if I get an idea from a book and it makes me better at my job, then why am I? You know, it's like I could sit at my desk and read Huffington Post articles, and no one's gonna say that I'm not working. But if I were to you know, sort of sit back and read, that would seem like I'm hanging out, right? And I, I just sort of wanted to get rid of that, you know, that that idea. So I, I started reading, and I consider it part of my job. And so I'm always looking for books that are going to help me either be a better person or help me with what I do for a living or that are going to teach me something, or whatever it is. And and when I'm looking for books, I, I have a couple rules. I mean, one, I, I always, like I was saying, I ask smart people, and I, I tend to stick to those recommendations. Um, but I, I also try to look for books that have stood the test of time. So um, and I know this probably sounds weird as someone who just released a book, but I try not to read a ton of new books. I try to read books that are either really old or vetted, or if they are new, vetted by people whose opinions I respect. Because the thinking is like, look, you, know, you could invest in some cutting edge new book and it could turn out that all the research was wrong or it could turn out that, you know, the author, you know, you read a Jonah Lehrer book and, hey, it turns out he was plagiarizing all of them. I'd rather, you know, stick with something that, hey, has lasted for 10 years or 20 years or 2,000 years. And that's one of the reasons I've loved the Stoics so much. 
That's a great test, and I was very impressed. Uh, I think I was either reading, maybe I was listening to you on a podcast or read somewhere in the book that that you pay to have all your books fact checked. I think most most authors don't do, unfortunately. Uh, even simple references uh, misquote the research or misunderstand the research. Uh, so it's very very cool and very impressive. Um, it is one of the most interesting questions that I think the smartest people I hang around ask, which is. You know, what three books are you reading or who do you know that I don't know that I should go find out? And um, and the people that say they don't have the time, like, I mean, the average American is watching like 38 hours of television a week. I mean, it's a whole work week that we spend (laughs) that we spend in front of some screen of some sort. And and I like to ask not just like, what are you reading? Because, again, it could be some new book, but I, I like to go like, you know, what's the what's the most important book you've ever read? What's the book that's changed your life? You know, those sort of questions. And if I. If I haven't read it or if I've never even heard of it, then that's like, oh, maybe there's something there. You know, like like you could you could say I'm not going to read a single book published after 1950 and still find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of amazing you know, titles that that it, that important people have have found to be influential or, or essential in their life. So that's that's what I'm always trying to do is like not just read like, oh, hey, this was good. It's like, hey, I want to read the thing that you're saying like was life changing or eye opening or amazing. I think it's so true. Most people like we'll just stop at the first Google page of <laughs> of, of search results, mm-hmm. and, we, and we won't we won't dig uh, deep enough at all. And certainly, someone that goes to an actual library, which I remind our clients, there are these amazing places with four walls that have sure. real <laughs> real books inside of them with really great people uh, called librarians who who know more than most people on the planet and. Um, and yeah, you'll you'll find a book uh, that maybe is hundreds of years old, uh, and so it's really really fascinating. Yeah. I think um, that shows through in your in your book, Ego is the Enemy. I want to talk a little bit about the book because I know um, the clients. Have, so I read it when it first came out. I reread it recently in Mexico and took a bunch of notes. Um, literally, I, so I, I'm a, I'm a weird reader. I'll, I'll fill the whole book with like scribbles mm-hmm. in the front. Me too. I'll put page I'll put page numbers down and things I want to go uh, review either on my own or with clients and. Um, I mean, your story is really amazing and that most people can't take a step back and realize that most great success in life becomes a recipe for failure in so many business leaders, so many politicians. And we see it like over and over and over again throughout history. I mean, like thousands of years we've been doing this stupid stuff all based on our own ego. And um talk a little bit about like your story on coming to – because most people I think would just – you know, become cynical, become bitter, uh, become a victim in a world where, you know, you, you become massively successful and things start to crumble. Uh, I've had that with my own, my own businesses. I've had my entire team of employees walk out one day in 2009. Uh, the, the end point of that story was I deserved it. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen a marriage fall apart because of it. And it's, um, it's one of those things where like we, we never expect that things could go wrong or go go south real fast. And when they do, you know, very few people would have the insight you had in your book uh, on how ego affects all of it. And um, I just think it's really it's a very very powerful and telling story. So thanks for telling it. Um, share with us kind of like your story and your your climb to your your fast rise uh, through American Apparel and and, um, and and becoming really kind of one of the wonder kids and top thinkers of our day and um, and then being smart enough to step back and and realize that uh, that sometimes ego is is the, the center storm of all of that. 
Sure. Well, I think one of the things that happens when you're successful early, as I was lucky enough to be, you know, I dropped out of college and then I became the director of marketing at American Apparel around my 21st birthday. And, and, you know, my first book came out when I was 25 is you can, you can start to think that you're better than everyone else, that you're sort of on this rocket ship and that everything you touch is massively successful. And it'll always be this way because, you know, this was faded, you know, all, all these sort of things can start to run through your head. And, and I, I, I always tried to be very aware that that was a sort of a, a lie we tell ourselves, but, you know, watching American Apparel implode, you know, it wasn't, wasn't something I, I would say I was responsible for, but, you know, watching American Apparel um, go into bankruptcy, uh, there was a hostile takeover, the CEO was fired, someone who I looked up to and admired. Um, watching all that happen was a sort of a sober reminder that, like, look, most of the time when we experience failure, it's not something that was done to us. It was something that we do to ourselves. And I wanted to sort of explore the causes of that and explore how, I think most importantly, how we, how we avoid that. So it was, it was about how we're, we're often our own worst enemy. That's really what I would say the book is about. Yeah, I, mean, it's, I, I think there's probably so many people that – that worked at American Apparel at that time that would see things so differently and blame, you know, blame the former CEO, blame the people who took over the company, blame everyone besides looking around and saying, you know, maybe this, maybe we built this, <laughs> maybe we, we baked this in into the company as our own, our own issue. Uh, I've certainly seen that in our business. Yeah. You know, we grew practices from scratch. We had zero patients. We're one of the largest practices in the country. And you start to think that literally you can't do anything wrong. And then you, then you end up in court suing business partners and you end up uh, in land disputes and real estate deals go south. And, and the minute the wheels fall off, it's so easy to, uh, to point the fingers outward and to think externally. And no one really does what you've done so bri- brilliantly in your book. Well, I think it's interesting. It's, we're, we're really fast to say somebody else is acting out of ego that, Oh, you know, that person's an egomaniac or, you know, you gotta be careful that guy's ego. So I think we're much more reluctant to point that finger at ourselves. Yeah, my dad, as a kid, grew up. He said, you know, you're, you're always going to judge other people by what they've actually done. So you're going to judge your friends and your girlfriend or you know your coach by their actions, and you judge yourself by your intentions, right? We we think we're, we're nice people. We we wanted to write the thank you card. We wanted to make the phone call on the birthday, and we forgot. But we give ourselves a little checkbox in the intention category, and everyone else gets to be judged, you know, based solely on what they do. Um, I, I think it's fascinating. So you know, what are some big mistakes? You see people, you know, maybe friends or maybe just in general, people you've observed in, in the public eye or in politics or in business, uh, big mistakes they do. And they, someone who would pick this book up, for example, you know, maybe it's an orthodontist or a doctor listening to this and they're going through the book and they're starting to kind of come to grips with, you know, maybe just possibly other people are right and they're wrong, you know, with, with how they run their business or, or the employee that, that got fired maybe maybe shouldn't have been fired. Uh, what are the big mistakes you see people make when they start to take a book like this and actually go implement it? I think one of the, one of the mistakes that I see most commonly is, um, is when, when we are successful, oftentimes there were a lot of people who either said that it wouldn't work or they disagreed with us or they doubted us, right? And so in order for us to do our success, we had to not listen to them, right? We had to ignore them or, you know, dismiss them as haters or, you know, sort of stick with our gut or intuition, which is a great attribute, right? Yep. Except the problem is that when, when we were then 
proven right uh, and everyone else is proven wrong, a lot of people take a sort of a perverse lesson from that, which is, you, so, you know, I'm right and other people are wrong, and so I'm not going to listen to them ever. So I tend to find, like, sometimes entrepreneurs, especially when they have sort of crazy successes or unexpected successes, they end up, they, what they have essentially learned is the wrong lesson. They've learned that when everyone is telling you that this is a bad idea, that it's actually a really good idea. And, you know, the reality is most of the time when people are telling you not to do something, they're right, or there's some truth to it, or there's something that you, should, you should consider. So what you end up seeing then is, is people, and I certainly saw this with American Apparel a little bit, it's like the more the critics, are, the critics and the investors and the, the, your supporters even are, are encouraging you to reconsider or trying to warn you about something, the more emphatically you want to double down on, on your position. And so you end up, you end up uh, sort of losing your grip with reality in a very dangerous way. I, I see it so often in a lot of political leaders where the smartest mm-hmm. ones will surround themselves with people who they intentionally know will disagree with them. And I see it in my own business. It's rare, and I have to encourage it. Uh, and it's easy to become, you know, the king of your own domain and, and only have employees that tell you yes. Oh yeah, great idea. Great. And you got to almost seek out and remind them, like, I know I really want to know, like, would you do this if, if this was your money and you were going to invest it? Do you think this is a good uh, time to add a new location? Is this a good part of town to add? In? Should we expand into another state? Uh, and you do. You kind of assume because you've been successful that that uh, that you're always going to make right decisions. Uh, and the book, yeah. the book, the book, your book goes through that so so well and. Like for every example you, you talk about, like, you know, for the Steve Jobs of the world and the, you know, these really harsh personalities who, you know, stories of people have obviously read, I'm sure, uh, uh, the biography on, on Steve. And, you know, he's that type of guy that would fire you in the elevator on the way to your office if you didn't have the right answer for him. Uh, for every one of those, like there's like a million others who that type of behavior actually is is deadly <laughs> in their career and in their lives and sure. and but we hold these figures up as like oh he's he was such a brilliant businessman or she was such a brilliant leader and the reality is like there's so many other people you've never heard of who behave that way and it actually was their downfall well and and you know you look at someone like Steve Jobs and it was it was in many ways almost his downfall as well right he gets fired from Apple and that, like in retrospect, it seems like you know Apple made a mistake when they fired Steve Jobs because he came back and it, you know he turned it into the world's most valuable company and all this stuff. But the reality is, when you look at the decision they made at the time, they absolutely should have fired Steve Jobs. You or I would have fired Steve Jobs. You know, he was unmanageable. Yeah, it's he wouldn't good. listen. He was over budget. Yeah, his products were underperforming. Uh, you know, he, he berated other employees. He was a mess, and so they fired him and. And and it was only in the, that he you know eventually learned from that and and, and went on and, and reevaluated some of those decisions that you know he was able to turn things around. But you know not everyone gets a second chance like that. And I think to to think that you you can get away with that is is to be a bit presumptuous. You know, the, being an asshole was not what made Steve Jobs successful. <laughs> in fact, it's what almost made him not successful. Exactly right. Yeah, no one thinks about that part though. They just think like I got to be. I've got to be harsh and I've got to, you know, I've got to, you, you summed it, summed it up brilliantly and that 
every time someone tells you like, no, no, you can't do that. You're like, well, I'll, I'll show them like, you know, I'll do it come hell or high water. Uh, and we right. all kind of, we all kind of have some of that. And I, it's probably something I imagine, you know, I can't speak directly. I didn't know him personally, but I know people, uh, that are worth a half a billion dollars and they think this way, right? They, they think, yeah, uh, it's always going to be the right decision, right? And kind of on his deathbed, he he said, "I'm going to spend Apple's last dime fighting Android." Right? That I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's again another another thing a lot of entrepreneurs would do. It's like, well, I'll show them, you know, I'm gonna, I'm going to spend my last penny showing them I'm right. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. I love to kind of switch gears. I love, early in the book, you talk about people that are ruled by principle versus emotion, right? And so when you talk a lot, you're obviously a very good student of history, and you talk a lot about General Sherman uh, and, and the Civil War, and you know, a lot of people have forgotten or maybe don't know him as well as they should, but this is, this is a guy who turned down and refused the presidency. Uh, you know, Very few people would have the willpower and, and the principle uh, to do that. Right? I love the story. I'm from Missouri. Sure. I love the story of, uh, of Harry Truman driving home uh, you know, from back in the before, you know, the Secret Service lived with you for the rest of your life as president. He he was just driving home uh, from leaving the, the the White House and went back to his family farm in Missouri, sure. and uh, you know, and 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 didn't have all of the things that uh, I think a lot of people assume they're entitled to when they reach a certain level of success. Certainly, Sherman uh, could have and would have been president, but he refused it. I guess I'm just curious on your thoughts on. You know, why do you think so many people in today's culture are, and maybe it's, maybe it's been throughout history, where we're really ruled by emotional decisions? Well, look, I think I think what it comes down to is is most people don't have a good sense of what they actually want or what they're actually trying to accomplish. So they make things on a on a sort of uh, reaction to reaction basis, right? So. Uh, you know, when, when Sherman turns down, Sher- Sherman's famous statement was like, you know, um, if, 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 if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. Right? And, and so his premise was like, don't even consider me for this. I will not do it. And he said, I have all the ranks that I want. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's like, look, I wanted to be a general. I became a general. Why would I do anything else? Right? Uh, that's, not, that's, not what, that's not what happiness looks like to me. And I think uh, 
as you become, that's easy, you know, that, that might seem easy for someone who's not successful to, to, to grasp. But the, the reality is as you become successful, people start offering you really awesome things, right? Like I'll give you an example from my personal life. I got an email a few days ago. Someone wanted to, you know, talk about doing this TV show uh, with me where I would be on camera. And, and so obviously from an ego perspective, that sounds amazing. Like who doesn't want a television, you know, a television show uh, where they're on camera, like their own show. And, and then I was thinking about it and it's like, wait, I'm, I'm already extraordinarily busy. Writing is my favorite thing to do. I actually dislike being on camera. And had this person not mentioned it to me, I would have, I would have had no, no idea that I could even be on a show. Right. <laughs> and so, but you're tempted to say yes, right? It's like, of course, like, let's explore it. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, you end up spending a lot of time pursuing it. And I think, um, you know, it takes discipline and it takes some self-awareness and it takes, um, it, it, it takes some self-control to be able to say, actually, that sounds awesome, but it's not for me. I'm not going to do it. To say I have all the ranks that I want or I would rather do this instead. And, and so, you know, but if you're just thinking, hey, is this good or not? you know, you're going to say yes. But if you have a sense of, hey, you know, here's what my ideal life looks like, and a television show is not part of that, it becomes easier to resist the sort of egotistical sway of whatever the, you know, the glittering, shiny thing that someone's dangling in front of your face. And so, you know, the converse of, of Sherman is Ulysses S. Grant, who was a horrible politician. In fact, he was a great general because he didn't know how to play politics. Um, he's given essentially the same offer. He accepts it. He runs for president. He wins. It goes terribly. Um, and then, as he was sort of as he was winding that up, his son says, "Hey, you know, have you thought about starting a Wall Street brokerage?" And of course, you know, Grant had never thought about this. This is not something he has any expertise about. And the next thing you know, he's, he's invested all his money in this in this uh, brokerage house which soon goes belly up and he loses not only everything, he loses all the investors' money. <laughs> and so uh, and he ends up, you know, broke at the end of his life. He writes his memoirs just to leave his family something to live on. But that's, if, if you're just saying, yeah, I, I, you know, some people have a problem, they say no to everything, they never have any fun. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is the people that say yes to everything and they become drastically overcommitted and, and their real work, the thing they're actually going, going for, suffers as a result. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we coach this relentlessly with clients who will forget. So most of our clients are orthodontists or cosmetic dentists. There's some surgeons mm-hmm. in the group uh, who forget that, like, you went to school for, like, 12 years to do this amazing thing for patients, and you're highly skilled at it. And then someone comes along and says, hey, we should do a real estate deal, and we should, we should start developing sure. commercial property. And, and now suddenly, the, just like the offer for you to be on a television show, I mean, I think 99 people out of 100 would say, yeah, let's do the TV show. Very few people, uh, you know, as Robert Greene says, actually plan out all the way to the end. Had Grant mm-hmm. plan, had Grant planned all the way to the end, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have seen his end point as writing a memoir, so his family would have somebody to live on. I and mean, he he would have said, "I don't I don't know anything about Wall Street. Uh, I really don't know anything about politics." And and so many of us just because of the fear of missing out or for whatever reason we're not principled, we say mm-hmm. yes to too many things. But I agree, yeah, it's, it's, this is not a message of saying no. But our joke 
you know, with clients is, you know, I can probably tell you what you're doing for your marketing plan for your practices. It's, it's whatever came across the threshold of your door. So some sales rep came in and, and sold you a social media and SEO package. Some years ago, a Yellow Pages rep came in. And so none of it was intentional. It's just whoever came and approached you, right? <laughs> and so yeah. you know, no one really thinks through, like, well, where am I headed? And, and the minute we do, like, I think it's so fascinating, human nature, like, when I graduated college, I could fit all of my worldly possessions in the back of a 1996 Ford Explorer, right? And then the last time mm-hmm. I the last time I moved, I had to hire someone. Fast forward 12 years, I had to hire someone to take all the junk out of my basement that I didn't want anymore, right? It would have taken six Ford Explorers just to fit all the crap that I didn't use anymore. We all mm-hmm. kind of forget, right, that you can be happy. You know, like in your example, you're a massively successful writer. Uh, you're a great strategist. And, you know, it takes a lot of principle to turn down a TV show. But most clients, most doctors, they get to a million dollars in their practice and then they want two. And then they get to two and they want five. And they get to five and they want ten. And they never look back and go, crap, I, I, I never see my kids. I, I stopped doing all my hobbies. I never hang out with my friends, and I don't read anymore, and I'm and I'm overweight, and I and so there's all these issues that we because we yeah. as as humans kind of constantly raise the bar. So the minute we get somewhere, we can't ever play the reel to the end and go, "This is like fantastic, and what a blessing." And how can I help more people or do it more efficiently? But I don't have to go chase after. And your example, a TV show, and then because the minute you take the TV show, then it's going to be a radio show, then it's going to be your own magazine, then it's like, and then you wake up one day and you're like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> well, and 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 where ego, I think, plays the most insidious part in all that is we we could be perfectly happy with what we have, and then we see that someone else has something, even something we've not wanted to do, right? Like you know, somebody else has a TV show and you didn't want one. Now you're like, well, why don't I have one? Or you see someone else having a vacation on Instagram and you say, well, I should be there. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't I have that? And it's like, you can go wherever you want. You just chose not to do that. And it only mattered to you when you saw that someone else might have been enjoying it. And so this, this need to one-up everyone, this need to have things that other people have simply so you, you measure up is this sort of insidious form of ego. And it, it's, it's, it's driving us fur it's not only driving us further and further from where we want to go, it's often undermining what we have. So, you know, your example of I'm making a million dollars a year, that's huge. It the problem is sometimes, you know, you're now you're chasing two and the things that the sort of unsexy things you were doing to get to one are now being neglected. I, I sort of saw that with my own business. I, I, I took on a partner and we decided we were gonna scale this from a marketing consulting agency we had and I, I was sitting there doing the math one day, and I was like, I'm working twice as hard <laughs> to make the exact same amount of money personally, and I'm doing less work that I'm proud of. Yep. So, you know, this is, this, is, this is, they call it the red queen effect, running faster and faster to stay in the same place. That's the opposite of what you want. You know, ideally, uh, you want to get a business that takes less of your time, that allows you more freedom to enjoy what you're having, not something that eats up a larger and larger share of your life. Yeah. What's your advice for people listening when, when you get through? Because I, I, I mean, I so resonate with the book and the three segments of the book are so really brilliant. You know, when you, when you kind of get into the point where you go, all right, 
you know, I'm looking, I'm looking down the barrel of, of a pretty good failure. Maybe it's a business relationship. Maybe it's a partner that has to be let go. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a location as a doctor, you have to sell, uh, whatever that looks like uh, and admit failure. Like how do you see when, what's your advice to people going into that? When, when I went through that with my company, it was like, okay, this has gone far enough. I'm going to, I, I shouldn't have ever gotten into this mess, but I'm in it. Now, how can I detangle this in a way that hurts as few people as possible? How can I own my mistake? Like, I'm not going to try to cut any corners. I'm going to try to pay whatever it costs. I'm going to do it now. And then I think the silver lining is, you know, okay, I'm going to have to have some tough conversations here with employees, with other people, etc. And how can I do that and be better for having had them, right? It's like, Normally, I would, like, I got into this mess because I didn't want to have any hard conversations. Well, I, now I realize my mistake. Now I'm going to have those conversations, and I'm going to be more comfortable having them in the future. So it's, it's not just, okay, you know, I, I say in the book, uh, and this is a, a quote from Molly Ivins. She's a great writer, a uh, Texas writer. She's saying, you know, the first rule of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. <laughs> so it's fir- it's, first, it's like, okay, let's not make this any worse. Let's, you know, full stop whatever. And then it's, okay, how can I learn from this experience? How can I be made stronger for it? How can I, how by going through this tougher, difficult thing, will I emerge, you know, sort of more mature, more responsible, more direct, you know, more in control of myself. And so therefore you can almost find something to be a little bit excited about, right? Like, like, hey, now I'm, now I've got this thing I'm going to do and that, and that I know I'm going to be better for it. That, that's sort of how I tried to look at it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think for anyone going through the book, I mean, that the third section really is like, it's a, it's a battle cry to, to actually stay. I think most people in life never get to that third section and get through it correctly. They, I mean, I, I've seen so many friends and I see a lot of business owners and even some clients that will put their toe in the water of becoming you know, like a private client of ours, uh, which is a, a big investment of time and energy. And they have to change a lot in the practice, starting with, you know, pretty much everything they've designed in the business that's not going well. They have to acknowledge it's probably something they've self-designed and it's, it's them that's the problem. I think the real reason that happens is, is one of the things that I say in the book is, you know, if you believe that your success says something about you as a person, that it says that you're better than other people, that you're smart, that you're attractive, that you're, you know, special, that you're amazing, that you're, you know, all these things, um, which it doesn't. Um, <laughs> the problem is then when you go through difficulty or failure, which is an inevitable part of life, which happens even to incredibly successful people, right? You know, Amazon launches a phone and it doesn't work, uh, you know, or, or Google launches Google Plus and it fails, you know, failure is inevitable. It, but if you believe your success said something about you as a person or as a leader, the problem is now all of a sudden you think that your failure says something about you as a person too. Yeah. And so it says that you're a failure, that you're worthless, that nobody likes you, that you know, you, you are a fuck up or what, whatever it is. And so that's, that's why you can't have either of those ideas. But I think it's partic- ego is particularly insidious when you're going through tough times because uh, what it's telling you now is not that you're awesome, but that you're worthless. And, and you take that to heart. At, the, at, at a moment of weakness, that can be fatal. So that's why, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's not good to have ego when you're successful, but it's 
potentially fatal to have ego when you're when you're going through a tough time. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite sections of the book. I think you know, despite like, all the things we've learned throughout our lives as kids, you know, learning how to ride a bike and you try something new and you realize it didn't work and you fall and scuff your knee, right? And you go to college and you think something's going to work and it doesn't work out. So we've had all these like example after example after example of things in life either work or they don't and smart people kind of figure it out and cope with it and they survive. Uh, But regardless of all that evidence, we all think from today forward, everything's just going to (laughs) work. Like, so, so they're like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm going to start a new business. And uh, I mean, it'll work. Right. And in spite of the fact that, that there's like 11 Italian restaurants all on the same block, some guy opens an Italian restaurant thinking because, because he thinks his food is a gift to the world and because, because he wants to be in this business. Right. And because he wants to make money, and he wants to live in Austin, he thinks that it's just going to work. I opened the book with a quote from Richard Feynman where he's saying, you know, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Exactly. And, and I think that's what, why I'm sort of talking about ego as this, you know, essential thing that you have to master because, you know, trying to open a restaurant, to, to use your example again, it's very difficult. It's difficult enough to open a restaurant and have it be successful. If what you're adding on top of that is this sort of murky haze of, uh, of delusion, you know, your enthusiasm is blinding you to this problem or that problem, you know, your, your, your projections are overly optimistic because of this and that, you know, your, your, your employees, you think they're more excited than they are because you just assume everyone shares your excitement, you know, you've, You've uh, exaggerated the, the demand of the customers. You know, you assume that this is going to be easy because you want it so bad. All of these things, they're making that difficult thing even harder, and they're making it potentially impossible for you. So what I'm trying to say is when you strip ego out of this equation, right, like writing a book is hard enough. If, if, if what you're putting in there is, is that it's going to be easy, it's going to come naturally, and it's automatically going to be a success, you might as well not even start because you, you've already sort of – you know, you got three strikes right there. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm trying to get you to strip ego out so you can see this thing in its objective light. You can see it clearly and cleanly. You know what you have to do. You're committed to doing it. And then, I think this is the most important part, you actually go do it. There's so many people who are just talking all the time about how easy things will be and, and how they could if they wanted to, but they don't do it because I think deep down they're afraid of what we were talking about earlier, which is, what will it say about me if it doesn't work? Exactly. They won't acknowledge it. We just came back from a, a meeting. Our, our team trainers went every year. They get all the graduate residents together. So there's Orthodox is a very small world. There's only about 15,000 orthodontists in the country, in the United States and Canada combined. There's um, uh-huh. about 180,000 dentists. So it's, it's a small group. They all know each other. And, and you know, the message to these residents is because a lot of them come out and they think, okay, I was number one in my class in dental school. I got selected into a very competitive residency. Uh, I've been in school for 12 years and now I'm entitled to 350 grand a year, a brand new Mercedes, a great house and a country club membership. Sure. And our message is like, if, if you, your compelling reason why you exist has got to be more than you want to be an orthodontist, you want to live in Austin and you want to make money, right? The market just doesn't care. <laughs> like, but you think like, sure. you know, and, the, and you're so right. Like putting that on top of it's hard enough 
to go start a practice. You know, luckily starting an ortho practice or a dental practice or a cosmetic surgery practice is not as difficult of a failure rate as opening a restaurant, but it's also not a guarantee. And the minute you add this stuff on top of it, uh, you almost make it impossible. Sure. It's, it's like, look, you know, relationships are hard. The second you put entitlement on top of that, you, you make them impossible, right? Or you make them destined to fail. And, and so I think it's true for all of, the, all of these things. What you want to be is sort of open and vulnerable and, and clear-eyed and, and, and ready to work hard and, and, you know, driven by a sense of purpose. You know, these are all much cleaner and better fuel than, than I think ego and entitlement ever will be. It's very, very cool. Um, I really appreciate your time being here. I want to make sure people yeah. know how to to get to you. They can sign up for your book, uh, your monthly book recommendation list. What's your website yep. I can, we can push them to? Yeah, it's just ryanholiday.net. Cool. So ryanholiday.net. You guys can go there. Get on his book list. There are uh, only a handful of books that I reread every year, and uh, Obstacles Away has been on that list for a long time, and now Ego, Ego is the Enemy oh, awesome. is, is, now, is now on that list. So uh, anyone, any of my clients that aren't uh, reading this and aren't paying attention to it. Um, it's, it's not for my lack of, <laughs> of, of trying. I'm sending you the book, and, uh, and Ryan's been nice enough uh, to come on today and, and talk uh, about the book. So I appreciate you being here. And true to your, you're actually living your wisdom is that, you know, and I hope you don't care that I share, but so Ryan is so busy sure. and I'm so busy that Ryan is doing this call on a Sunday afternoon <laughs> on his weekend. So, uh, anyone who actually lives out the wisdom of, of not letting your ego get in the way, it would have been very easy for Ryan to, uh, to blow me off and say, who the hell do you think you are? It's a, it's a Sunday. Of course, I'm not going to do a phone call on a Sunday, you knucklehead. Uh, so I, <laughs> I appreciate you being here on the weekend. And, no, thanks. Uh, yeah. thanks. Thank you for supporting the book. I, I, I'm glad we were able to make it work. It's awesome. It's a fantastic book. Everyone needs to read it, pay attention to it. And thank you for the work you do. You're pushing humanity forward. I don't know if you know uh, Matt Crawford and his book, Beyond, The World Beyond Your Head. Uh, living, yeah. I, I put you in the category. You're just brilliant, brilliant thinkers. Uh, and and oh, it's, just, it's really cool what you guys are doing. So. Um, thanks for being here. I hope you have a great weekend. You too. All right, we'll see you. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you've enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list and study guides for each of the books and authors we interview. Call us at 800-891-7520 to discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Abraham Lincoln, who said, My best friend is a person who will give me a book I have not read. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. 
Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stax. Once again, that's StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.